Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the History of England, episode 396, The New Model. Last time then, we heard about the King's skilful escape at a second Newbury and the tantalising prospect of what might have been if there had been a third Newbury, which there wasn't. And the launch of the campaign of the great Montrose and Alistair McCullough. Expect a merry dance there. Anywho, the mood in Oxford was much happier than it was in Westminster as the end of 1644 approached, despite the crushing royalist defeat at Marston Moor. Charles felt good about himself and his performance as a warrior. His queen was safely in France, one less thing to worry about. And the news from Scotland and Montrose was amazing. I mean, cry Harry, well, cry Andrew, and all that. And oddly... When the news of Lord's execution arrived in January at Oxford, it also buoyed Charles's mood. He wrote to Henrietta Maria about it. Such an obvious outrage must surely bring down God's providential wrath on the rebels. This last crying blood being theirs, this hand of justice must be heavier upon them and lighter upon us. Everyone believes in providence, it seems, in the 17th century. Charles rearranged the deck chairs and what he had no idea yet was in fact the Titanic. He promoted Rupert to be his overall Captain General in November, which surely made good sense. And yet he still managed to put Rupert's back up by not including his royal lifeguards in the command, which for some reason really hacked Rupert off. Touchy, sensitive, delicate flower that he was. Rupert was also at daggers drawn with George Digby, who was increasingly popular with Charles again now. 
inexplicably. What is it about that bloke? Given his wild optimism and risk-taking, utter egocentricity and ambition, complete inability to understand the consequences of his policies, which led him to be described by historian Ronald Hutton as one of English history's most dangerous men. I suppose what turned Charles's head was that Digby was plausible, sounded clever on the surface, good with words, the consummate courtier, essentially. I wonder if we can think of anybody like that in modern politics. Best not to answer. Anyway, Digby has caused trouble before. It was his idea about the five members thing, so that went well, and he will cause trouble again. Rupert showed jolly good sense by despising him. Anyway, that's all to come. But at the end of the year, in the long and short, the broad and wide, Charles was feeling pretty darned chipper and he had peace proposals on his desk too from Parliament, which we'll come to. So this week, we're going to major on the eruption of anger and division in the ranks of the revolutionaries. In brief, this is the rise of what you might describe as parties within Parliament. I mean, not modern, organised, manifestoed political parties like we're used to today, but darn it, parties nonetheless. That every man and woman in the street recognised in London and talked about and appeared in news sheets, so let's not be political party picky. Independents and Presbyterians. Presbyterians and independents. Not just a religious division, but a political division to boot. The political and religious divisions don't exactly map on each other, but that is too deeply an irritating wrinkle and detail I don't really want to go into, so just forget I said it. Anyway, they do say that how you respond to disaster is more important than how you got into the disaster at, in the first place, or at least that's what some old guy said to me when I'd only reached the ubiquitous grasshopper's knees, and it seemed very intelligent comment at the time and I've never forgotten it. So will be the case here. While the anti-room of the Newbury campaign had been noodling on, one of the advantages for Manchester, Essex, Waller, Hazelrig, Cromwell and the like was with all that waiting around, they were able to go and take up their seats in Parliament. Manchester had not found this easy, getting into something of a squabble with the Committee of Both Kingdoms. Cromwell, on the other hand, had found it all rather pleasant, formally thanked by the Commons for his performance at Marston Moor. Thank you, thank you very much, thank you. He used his influence then with Oliver St John to introduce a new motion into Parliament called the Accommodating Order. This order asked the Westminster Assembly of Divines to find some way how far tender conscience, who cannot in all things submit to the common rule which shall be established, may be borne in accordance with the word and as may stand with the public peace. The motion was accepted by the Commons. Now this is a statement of religious toleration in contravention of the intentions of the Solemn League and Covenant. It is another step forward in the definition and organisation of a party which places religious independency and toleration at its heart. It joined a declaration that had been made by five divines from the Westminster Assembly itself. Now, the other party, the English Presbyterians and their Scottish allies, were now seriously worried about all this toleration tripe. They saw independency threatening that solemn league in the Assembly, in Manchester's Eastern Association Army, and now in Parliament. And they thought they knew who was the prime mover, none other than Oliver Cromwell. In their worry, 
they changed their attitude and strategy fundamentally. Now they were worried that maybe the security of their covenant and Kirk did not lie with an overwhelming victory for Parliament. Maybe outright military victory wouldn't be a good idea because it would simply sweep the independents to power on the back of the army in which they were so strong. And that kind of religious toleration was just not their aim at all. They wanted a national church. And so, in November, the Scots and their English Peace Party and Presbyterian buddies put out the feelers for peace again to Oxford and carried proposals for consideration to them. The result was a long conference on neutral ground in a place called Uxbridge, which was a small settlement west of London at the time and is now firmly in West London. And it started on the 29th of January 1645. The Scots may have joined the Peace Party, but they brought no realism whatsoever with it. Their proposals were eye-watering, lemon-suckingly, buttock-clenchingly uncompromising, largely formed by the author of the Covenant, Archibald Johnson. They demanded various things, among them that the King would swear to the Covenant, that the religion of Scotland be implemented fully in England, that various malignant royals, the King's close friends basically, be excluded from any pardons so they could get the chop. I'm going to gloss over the Treaty of Uxbridge, because there was at no point any chance whatsoever of it succeeding. Charles's counter-proposals actually looked super reasonable by contrast, protecting the Book of Common Prayer, offering some relief for tender consciences, which is a first and some movement from him, though leaving any constitutional change as already agreed in 1641. And he had no intention of agreeing to a treaty anyway. Henrietta Maria was in his ear, and anyway, his tail was up. He was going to win. So again, the story is of a king negotiating in bad faith, but this time fair dues. The proposals from Parliament were never going to be acceptable to anyone other than a king who'd been mashed, mangled and muzzled by utter defeat. But you need to know it's going on, because it's going on in the beginning of 1645 for a few months, because in the parliamentary bun fight that is about to burst around us, people knew it was going on, and many may have kidded themselves that it stood more than the traditional snowball's chance in hell of succeeding. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. The mood in the capital when everyone returned at the end of the campaigning season in November was very different to the happy sort of tone prevailing in Oxford, which is all wrong, given the strategic situation, really, but that's the way it was. The feeling in London was that there had been a definite failure after the Marston lost with the period. There had been noodling, and at Newbury, the ball had been fumbled and dropped. Then new sheets talked it up, as new sheets tend to do. They talked of their generals in providence and in prudence. There was talk of betrayal and of God's judgment. So, on the 14th of November, Arthur Hazelrig stood before Parliament as one of the responsible commanders, and he tried to explain it away, how they'd let the king escape. I think it's fair to say the Commons were unimpressed. And so, on the 22nd of November, when Waller and Cromwell arrived and came into the house, they were no longer treated as heroes as they had been last time they'd tipped up. They were coldly ignored. They then received a formal demand to explain themselves to the House. Essex, Manchester, Heselrig, all of them were in the firing line. Now look, they could have defended their actions collectively and struggled on into 1645 with Essex leading them into another year of war. 
And in the House on the 25th of November, that was in all likelihood exactly what they expected to hear. Indeed, the night before the session, the Countess of Manchester treated Cromwell and Harry Vane to supper, emphasising the high regard her husband held for them, and in the background, they could hear the knitting of needles as arse covers were constructed for all of them, making sure there would be a suitable cover-up that protected the reputations of their lordships, Manchester and Essex, and after all, surely Cromwell would like his arse covered too. But the following day, that is not what the Commons heard. What they got was long, impassioned and devastating, laced with tears. What they heard offended all the social niceties. It was a detailed series of accusations laid against the competence of a peer of the realm and against the Speaker's senior commanding officer. Carrying on in the same old way was just not good enough for Oliver Cromwell, for it was he that spoke with the passion and style of the evangelical preacher, hence the tears. And it was he that opened a war on the old guard, and his fury was aimed squarely at Manchester. He listed a catalogue of errors and failures of his boss since the victory at Marston Moor. He talked about the fact that he, Cromwell, had been frustrated time after time from taking action that Manchester had dragged his heels before marching to attack the King in the Midlands. he dragged his feet throughout the Midlands campaign. In fact, every limb had been criminally underutilised. He responded to accusations by Crawford, the Scots and Manchester that he was using the army to build up the cause of independency against the Solemn League and Covenant. He acknowledged that most of his men were independents, but he refuted claims that he was building a party. He favoured only men, he said, who fought well and did not care for all of the rest. He then acknowledged that Manchester's actions were motivated by a deeply held and sincere belief. He made no personal accusation, cast no shadow of cowardice or betrayal on his boss. He recognised that Manchester held a sincere belief that this war could not be won by military means. For Cromwell... That attitude stood between the country and the end of this chaos and violence and the return of peace. The climax of the speech was a ringing account of an army council meeting on the morning of the 10th of November when he and others had pleaded with Manchester for an immediate attack to win a decisive victory against the Royalists. But Manchester had refused. To explain, he'd shot back... If we beat the king ninety and nine times, yet he is king still, and so will his posterity be after him. But if the king beat us once, we shall all be hanged, and our posterity be made slaves. Cromwell was appalled, horrified. Ignoring the fact that a Huntingdon farmer was addressing a peer of the realm and his commanding officer, he could not help but express his despair. If this be so... Why did we take up arms at first? This is against fighting ever hereafter. If so, let us make peace, be it never so base. It is a fair point, you've got to admit. That is one of the most famous speeches of the civil wars. Why did we start this if we're not prepared to finish it? For Cromwell, this mattered in a way that for people like Manchester and Essex, it did not quite so much. When Cromwell finally sat down, the speech had caused a sensation. Again, this was not the way it was meant to be. Manchester was a peer, Manchester was Cromwell's superior officer. 
but Cromwell could not be ignored. Waller, Cromwell's superior, then stood up to speak and supported Cromwell's statement. Hazelrig, he'd been Oliver's commanding officer at Newbury, he now spoke for Cromwell too. Around the house there were nodding heads. Cromwell had hit a nerve. This confusion couldn't go on. If the cause is right, do the cause right. The sentiment ran beyond Parliament. Samuel Luke, the scoutmaster and governor of Newport Pagnell, kept a diary. Just a few days before, he had written of his fear that the real issue would not be addressed in Parliament. I fear fair words will endanger us more this winter than all the forces of the enemy has done this summer. Cromwell had been accused of all sorts of complicity, and it's pretty clear he stood to gain by putting the blame on his boss, and he wasn't shy of putting the best light on his own talents. And his style was rough, and in the passionate style of a preacher, tears and all. Cromwell noted that he had not yet arrived at the facility of speaking with decency and temper. Still a diamond in the rough, then. But another speech a few days later explains Cromwell's determination to be heard and to be heard now. It is now a time to speak or forever hold the tongue. The important occasion now is no less than to save a nation out of a bleeding, nay, almost dying condition. Without a more speedy, vigorous and effectual prosecution of the war, we shall make the kingdom weary of us and hate the name of Parliament. There was a job to be done. Finishing it soon was in everyone's interest, and finer feelings could not be allowed to get in the way. The debate sat late into the night. Newsbooks found sources who told them what had happened and praised Cromwell's clearness and ingenuity. Eventually, the Commons ordered a committee to investigate all the evidence from those involved, to be chaired by a leading Presbyterian, Zuch Tate. There's a name for you tasked with coming up with recommendations. One of the witnesses who came to London to be interviewed by the committee in support of Oliver's case was honest John Lilburn, telling of his experiences at Manchester's hands. Lilburn now was an increasingly divisive and public figure in London, writing horrified pamphlets against the intolerance of people like William Prynne, meeting up with a group of radical political independents at the Windmill Tavern in Lothbury, near St Paul's, and hooking up with fellow radical Richard Overton, of whom you will hear more. Predictably, the establishment fought back. Manchester demanded the right to defend himself, and on the 28th of November in the Lords, he stood and made a speech equally impassioned and forthright. He denied saying any of those words at the Army Council. He clearly rebutted Cromwell's accusation one by one. He was for the most part dignified and thorough but he made two critical errors. The first was that he admitted that he did indeed believe that God did not intend either side to gain an outright victory. Now look, this is a dodgy attitude for an army commander. It rather supported Cromwell's case. And then the second mistake was that he got personal. He accused Cromwell of trying to undermine his authority in the Eastern Association. He went proper nuclear Cromwell, he thundered, was a dangerous social revolutionary and effectively guilty of treason against the rebellion. Cromwell, Manchester declared, hoped to live to never see a nobleman in England. His animosity against the Scots nation was such, as he told me, that he would as soon draw his sword against the Scot as any in the King's army, and he desired to have none in my army but such 
as were of independent judgment. The horror of it. A threat to the right and established social order, a man to turn the world upside down, a threat to society and proper religious control. Most of the lords rallied around Manchester. Despite his military failures, Essex still had enormous respect and influence in the lords and also with the Peace Party and the Presbyterians in the Commons and, of course, with the Scots. Now he threw his weight also behind Manchester. The Lords asked for a written version of Manchester's speech, they debated and approved it, and on the 2nd of December sent it down to the Commons. It was effectively a stern reproof, a warning to get back into their box. Cromwell was nothing daunted and angrily accused the Lords of breaching the legal privilege of MPs to speak their minds, to say what they needed to say. Many in the Commons vigorously agreed. Meanwhile, Essex and Manchester gathered their strength, pressed the flesh, whispered in ears, slapped backs, brought as many as they could into their tent. Bolstrode Whitelock remembered being called to a late-night secret meeting with Essex, other MPs, Denzel Hollers and the Scots commissioners. But Whitelock, ever the lawyer, ever cautious, argued against it. The accusations would be almost impossible to make stick, he said, and he pointed to the large network of support Cromwell had behind him now. In the end, they bottled it, backed away, unable to provide the specific proof they needed, and at 2am, the meeting broke up. Well, this is all very dramatic, and very dangerous, it must be said. The unity of Parliament was collapsing under the weight of military failure. The Commons were splitting into parties, political independence led by St John, Vane, Hazelrig and Cromwell, arguing for an active prosecution of the war, favouring religious toleration ranged against them, the much larger group actually, Presbyterians like Denzel Hollows and Philip Stapleton in the Commons, seeking accommodation with the King and the implementation of the Solemn League and Covenant to keep the Scots on board. Parliament was splitting horizontally too for the first time since 1641. A chasm was opening up between the Commons and the House of Lords. In the Lords, the War Party, the likes of Say and Seal, was a very fragile plant now, heavily outnumbered in the face of supporters of Essex and Manchester. Charles and Hyde must have been rubbing their hands with glee in Oxford. There seemed no way out of this mess for the rebels. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So the curtains rise and into a highly charged, noisy atmosphere in the Commons a week later on the 9th of December, after feverish committee meetings and interviews, walked Zush Tate. He sat quietly next to Harry Vane while the debate opened. He was holding a document. Whitelock was watching him closely. He was holding the piece of paper, he said, like a boil on his thumb. Against all the antagonism... There was a spirit emerging, though, of needing to find a way through these divisions because they shared the same ultimate aims. And if they couldn't achieve a compromise, a solution, a way through this, the consequences could end this. 
Cromwell was just one of those who spoke now, and he offered an olive branch, admitting that he had made mistakes, and that the time had come to put private interests aside for the public good. But the army was not fit for purpose, he said, and it must be reformed. Only then could the war be won. If the army be not put into another method, and the war more vigorously prosecuted, the people can bear the war no longer, and will enforce you to a dishonourable peace. At this point, Zouch Tate stood, unwound his paper boil, and made a proposal arrived at by his committee after a long week. There was, he proposed, to be an act, an agreement. It was to be called the self-denying ordinance. This proposed that the army be reformed, that they be combined into a full professional force. No more the ragtag collection of militias, no more the combination of MPs going out to be generals and then coming back and being politicians in Parliament. The self-denying bit, therefore, was that no MP could hold a position in the new army and vice versa, no army officer could also be an MP. The entire army would be employed from scratch, every officer would be fired and a complete new set recruited, selected by the new general, whomever they were. It would be an army formed around a new model, a new model army, a fully professional army focused solely on its craft, which would march anywhere, fight anywhere, not be forced to rush back to its malicious country at the turn of every corner. It would have first call on any resource over and above any regional armies or groups. Next, Harry Vane stood. This was the man responsible for bringing in the Scottish Alliance, who had negotiated the Solemn League and Covenant. His view would be critical. Vane had seen the consequences of his policy so far, and he had lost faith. He had always despaired of the idea of a national church that admitted of no liberty of conscience, and since Newbury he had increasingly aligned himself with the independents and the dissenting divines in the Westminster Assembly. Harry Vane now seconded the proposal, and his public intervention was probably decisive. And it has to be said that the self-denying audience was a masterstroke, because not only did it propose a thoroughly sensible army reform, its very basis completely undercut any accusation of factionalism, because the very people proposing and backing it would themselves come under its strictures and be disbarred from army or parliament by the ordinance. It couldn't be presented as a product of self-interest to promote one group over another. All would fall under its rules. To scotch any lingering suspicions of bias, Cromwell and others immediately announced they would be happy to abide by its requirements and stand down from their posts. Not that it was the end of the debate, far from it. Factions could not just disappear. Votes tended to coalesce around the Presbyterian independent divide, yet... Hollis and Stapleton tried to have Essex exempted from the exclusion of the self-denying ordinance so that their leader would remain general and in control. The proposal would have seriously threatened the new spirit of compromise. It was defeated by just seven votes. Next was the Solemn Leaven Covenant, where the debate now focused. Would officers be required to sign it before being appointed? And again it was a tight debate and the divisions harsh. One eyewitness spoke angrily of envy and self-ends but key independents and Cromwell himself would announce their willingness to abide by the decision and the danger passed, though how gritted were their teeth, history does not relate. But for him and others, unity here was required and took priority. To win the war was all. 
On the 19th of December, therefore, the self-denying ordinance was passed. It hadn't been easy. There had been hard words, there had been faction, gains, losses, noses shifted from joints. But the Commons had come through. They had found a solution that squared the circle. And it was with a palpable sense of relief, of a job well done, that the ordinance was sent up to the other place. Now it is almost certain that Vane, Sinjin, Say and Seal knew darned well what the reaction of the laws was going to be. The self-denying ordinance was in its way the most socially subversive document of the revolution so far. Just a estate. No one could be both in Parliament and command the military. Now the peers of the realm were therefore completely debarred from military command. Unlike the MPs, they couldn't even resign their seats. Their position in the Lords was indivisible from their rank. To serve their traditional function at the head of the army, they would have to de-lord themselves. And who was ever going to do that, even if it was possible? Tell me the fundamental DNA of the European aristocracy, a class whose legitimacy derived from their warrior status on which the origin of their landowning was based. Land given expressly to raise warriors for the king and defend the nation. It was them, the barons, that had defended English liberties against the king in days gone by. It was they that had stood against John at Runnymede, not the oiks. The self-denying ordinance tore that all up and burned it. Commoners would now command, commoners would now lead the army, the armies that Essex and Manchester had once led. Now look, the remnants of the old junto, say and seal in the lords, did his best to make them recognise the realities. He really did. Warwick, fresh from his naval service, showed how to be a big boy and accepted that he would no longer be Admiral of the Navy. It did absolutely no good whatsoever. The Lords were scandalised. Essex saw his hope of a negotiated settlement that left him as the King's right-hand man, the bridge between a chastised King and a victorious Parliament, utterly burned. That wasn't going to happen anymore. Manchester would be humiliated and removed com command. For the rest of the Lords, the Ordnance was an insult to their honour and tradition. It treated them worse than any free subject since they had no option to serve. The Peace Party was dominant in the Lords, was looking hopefully for a saviour from the halls of Uxbridge and that treaty, that peace treaty with the King, to come and save them. So they dillied for England, they dallied for Wales, they lost their way, forgot where to roam. But eventually they had to vote. Eventually they had to vote on the ordinance and they threw it out. In fact, only four peers voted for the horrid thing. Yuck, yuck, yuck. On the 13th of January, Speaker William Lentor took the whole House of Commons over to the White Chamber to present their arguments in person and ask what changes they could make to get this all-important ordinance through. The Lords were completely unimpressed. There's no point changing anything, they said, because the whole thing stunk and we're not talking of roses. So what happens now is a naked display of where power in this new world really lay, the realities of life. He who pays the piper plays the tune, my dad once said to me, and he was speaking truth, the old bugger. The strategy was formed in the committee of both kingdoms, where the war party, Vane, Oliver Sinjin, had a majority, and together with Say and Seal, they were the ringleaders of what happened next, the strategy. They decided that the strategy would be J do I. They would simply do it. And the Lords would find themselves powerless to resist because the Commons controlled the purse strings. 
Having failed top-down, they would simply build bottom-up. They would allocate all the money to the new model army. The old armies, Manchester's army, Essex's army, the basis of their authority, they would wither and die because they had no money. So, through January 1645, the Committee of Both Kingdoms made decisions which just cut Essex and Manchester and the Lords out of it. It was decided there that the new model army would amount to 6,600 horse, 1,000 dragoons and 14,400 foot, 22,000 in all. A new monthly assessment would be levied to provide pay for them. And they then set about the big to first task of naming the commanding officer. Now obviously there would be no lords, there would be no MPs. And after a full and frank exchange of views, the choice for the new supreme commander of the parliamentary armies was made. And the choice fell on Thomas Fairfax. Now because Thomas was such a humble, conscientious kind of guy, people have tended to assume that he was an apolitical, compromised candidate. But this underestimates a few things. First of all, of course, his military skill that he had displayed at Moor and elsewhere in Yorkshire. It is also, though, to underestimate Fairfax's political influence. In fact, Thomas's father, Fernandino, was the elder Fairfax and therefore the MP, hence why Thomas was eligible for military command, of course. Fernandino yielded a lot of influence in the Commons. In fact, he controlled a cohesive group of 21 Northern MPs. He was also not a compromised candidate. He was very much associated with a party, the Independent Faction. Although Thomas himself was away in York, he was also closely involved with the ongoing trial of the Hothams. Don't know if you remember the Hothams, hauled up for treason, sharing papers with the Royalists, bidding to go and change sides. Their trial has been going on for ages, it's still going on, and had become deeply political. While the Independents and the Fairfaxes wanted to get the Hothams executed for treason, Essex was absolutely ranged on the other side, doing his very hardest to support the Hothams against the charges. He tried multiple times to intervene and save them. But it was the relentless pressure of the Fairfaxes, the Hothams' local Yorkshire rivals, of course, which would win out. They provided over 30 witnesses against him personally. The critical vote came to the Commons, and after pleas of clemency for both Hothams, father and son, they failed. And both went to the block in February. It had been an impressive display, particularly of the Fairfax's political influence in the Commons. It is a problem, though, for Fairfax watchers. He is constantly underestimated. Primarily, Cromwell's later history persuaded some that Thomas was just Oliver's stooge. But this is very much not the case. Although Thomas was not personally ambitious, he was politically aware, committed to the revolution, determined to do his duty and play his role, and Cromwell accepted his leadership without question throughout, right up to the point where Fairfax gave it up in 1650. He was nobody's stooge. Bulstrode Whitelock recorded long, long council meetings discussing this and that about what was to be done, and he described Fairfax listening diligently and intelligently and then going and doing exactly what he wanted, often the opposite. Fairfax was a man who knew his own mind. So, Fairfax was then proposed as the new military chief, and the vote of the 21st of January in Parliament was another 
trial of strength between the Presbyterian Peace Party and the Independent War Party, which the independents won hands down 101 votes to 69. And Fairfax, a gentleman with ordinary coloured blood, replaced Essex, whose blood was definitely the traditional colour of your military leader through the centuries. In Oxford, when he heard this news, Charles was outraged and wrote to Henrietta Maria that Fairfax was the rebel's new brutish general. Presumably he spelt brutish, unless he spelt British wrong, of course. Presumably, though, he meant brutish as a commoner. But maybe it was Fairfax's association with the non-gentry officers that he'd had in Yorkshire. Or maybe Charles reflected back to Heworth Moore in 1642, when he'd turned aside the petition the Fairfaxes had brought from the community they served. He'd have done better to listen a little more closely, because soon that brutish general would be gnawing on his bum. Thomas, meanwhile, accepted the task laid on him, but it daunted him. I was so far from desiring it, that had not so great an authority commanded obedience, being then unseparated from the royal interest, beside the persuasions of nearest friends not to decline so free and general a call, I should have hid myself to avoided so great a charge. As new commander, Fairfax would get to a point all the officers ranked colonel and above. An extraordinary opportunity lay before him to mould the values and loyalties of the new organisation. Philip Skippen, as you'd probably imagine, was appointed his Major General of Infantry, but there was no obvious candidate for Major General of Cavalry who wasn't, like Cromwell, an MP. So the post was left open, which is tantalising, I'm not going to lie to you. Essex, Manchester and the Lords, they could see what was happening here. But they could do nothing to stop it. It was all going away from them. And they had no lever of power to pull. And so they accepted the inevitable. They caved in and moved their battleground to choosing the right sort of officers in the new model. They would fight hard to exclude independents and religious radicals and ally always with the Scots and Presbyterians. What didn't help that, though, was the news from Scotland. So, in the depth of a cold winter in the Highlands, are there any others? Montrose's force was down to just 1,500 men. Finally, the Marquis of Argyle himself had committed to doing this job right. He committed himself now, himself, to eradicate this irritating distraction and he raised a force of 3,500 men and he laid a trap in the Great Glen advancing on Montrose and McCullough from both north and south, with them in the middle. Argyle placed himself at the southern end of the glen, at Inverlochy. And it was there, on the morning of the 2nd of February, that he was confidently sitting on his boat in the loch, chilling. Probably in more ways than one, to be fair. Waiting for news of the, the capture of the rats, caught in the trap between his two superior armies, top and bottom, north and south. When out of the morning mist and snow, Montrose appeared with his clansmen from the mountains, and they were not trapped at all, because they'd gone round the lock, they'd spent a night camped out in open countryside, snow and ice, on the slopes of Ben Nevis. Argyle's troops, despite their superior numbers, were surprised, shocked and horrified, routed, put to flight, and Argyle was forced to flee on his barge into the Great Lock and watch as 1,500 of his men were slaughtered.
in the lock it was Montrose's third straight victory against the most remarkable odds. It looks set now to transform his campaign at last. More clans and Highland lords began to join this successful train. Argyle's personal influence, meanwhile, and his reputation, took an absolute beating. The basis of his power now, the clan Campbell, had been shattered. Its warriors were defeated, its homelands had been ravaged and plundered by McCullough. So Montrose wrote to the king in triumph and confidence. I am in the fairest hope of reducing this kingdom's to your majesty's obedience. Before the end of the summer, I shall be able to come to your majesty's assistance with a brave army. In London, the Scottish commissioner, Robert Bailey, recognised the terrible damage done to the Scottish cause. This is the greatest hurt our poor land got these four score years, and the greatest disgrace befell us these thousand. If we get not the life of these worms churted out before they creep out of our land, the reproach will stick on us for ever. It has much diminished our reputation in England for ever. Now the Covenanter Council in Edinburgh was forced to withdraw troops from England and weaken the parliamentary cause. In Ireland, Robert Monroe of the New Scots Army dared not move out from camp, wary of the need to be ready at the drop of a hat to return to Scotland if needs be, if Montrose scored yet another outrageous victory. Meanwhile, down south in Uxbridge, flushed with confidence, the king ensured the peace process ground to a close with no agreement, so there was no third way out for the Presbyterians. In Parliament, Fairfax allied with the independents and confirmed the appointment of the officers that he chose. And when the Lords and Hollis looked at the final roll call, it was realised that over 300 Scottish officers had resigned or been excluded. One more indignity remained. The Major General of Horse. Now, it seems that Cromwell had been sincere in accepting he would have to resign his commission, but he did so reluctantly, he wasn't happy about it. Waller, on the other hand, well, he was very different. He left the army with enormous relief and was thoroughly disillusioned by this stage. He felt slighted and disesteemed by his mutinous troops. The constant reference to mutiny among his commands suggests... Waller did not really have the touch of a Fairfax or a Rupert or a Cromwell. He was frustrated also by the complexities of politics, which frankly did his head in, and by what he called the discouragements of Parliament. So he would continue on in the Committee of Both Kingdoms, and he was granted rewards and lost wages by a grateful Parliament, and so for a time he said he felt puffed up, his words. But his military commands were over, and the rest of the revolution would become increasingly uncomfortable for Mr Waller. Quite stormy. Cromwell, however, he loved all that action of war. He loved the clarity of it, the energy. He loved command. He was damned good at it. He understood and had a bond with his men, and most of them admired old Noel right back. Cromwell was prepared to go, but he would have to be told to go. So he waited and waited until word came. And the committee of both kingdoms, on the other hand, were really not keen to lose their best cavalry commander by far. So to the fury of Essex, Manchester and the Peace Party, the Commons kept extending his commission. By June 1645, his position would be made permanent. Cromwell was an exception 
in many ways. Thomas Fairfax was brought to the Commons in an elaborate ceremony for the confirmation of his commission as head of the new model army. There were speeches and fine words, as there are at these sort of things. Speaker Lenthal praised him to the skies. Fairfax made a pretty speech in reply and generously praised the man he had replaced, the Earl of Essex. No one was fooled. Essex knew exactly what had happened here. The Lords had been given an education in power politics and totally eclipsed. The peers had been crowbarred from their ancient role and when you looked at all the appointments that had been made by Fairfax, the army was now staffed and officered by people of a social rank that horrified the rebel lords as much as they would be despised and mocked by the royalists. The new model would increasingly become a home to religious and political radicals. Essex remained bitterly opposed and unreconciled and used every trick he could to block the new model, the self-denying ordinance, the appointment of Fairfax and the career of Oliver Cromwell. He failed in all of it. In March 1645, he recognised that failure and resigned his offices in what has been described as a well-phrased and restrained statement in which he accepted his eclipse and stepped aside like a gentleman. It was the end of Essex's political career, really. He stayed on and hung about the place in Parliament and may even have nursed hopes of a revival in 1646 when Charles was playing the politics of survival. But he collapsed suddenly after a strenuous day's stag hunting in Windsor Forest in September 1646. He was given a stonking great big funeral with over 3,000 people crowding the procession and he would have enjoyed that. But the truth was that by his own ambitions, his career had ended in failure. John Morrill, the historian, is, I think, a little bit harsh in his assessment when he wrote, He was an inverted Midas. All that was golden in his inheritance and circumstance, he turned to dust. Only in the false bombast of his funeral was the recognition he craved ever accorded him. Golly, it's a bit mean. Anyway, Essex has left the building, that is the history of England at Goodbye Essex, and the new model has entered it under Thomas Fairfax. Next time, we'll find out what Parliament can do with their shiny new weapon. Until we meet again, don't know where, don't know when, but probably next Sunday on a podcatcher, don't forget the revived Anglo-Saxon England series, all about the lives of ordinary folk and how they shaped their world. Just search for the Anglo-Saxon England podcast and look for the blue logo. Until the cliffs of Dover appear again in a week's time then, have a real hoot. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.